Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Claire. It's so good to have you on the radio for 30 minutes of science and we have some stories for you this week. We have some delightful scientific research and the like. Uh, First up, I'm going to be talking about spider webs. Everyone loves a spider web, right? Well, you know, if you get get, get stuck in your hair, you know, they, they turn into cobwebs. And you, walk th- you walk through them on the way to the bin in the dark. <laughs> yeah. And then you do that thing where you freak out totally <laughs> yeah. and you hope no one sees you because you're so freaked out. Well, they're actually incredibly innovative in terms of what the, them what they're made out of. And did you know that spiders um, have can make multiple different types of webs? Butt not rope. just Yeah, multiple different yeah. types of butt rope mm. for the one spider. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, I have I have some good climate change news. Well, there's some bad news as well. Um, the bad news, I'll just get there's more to climate change than just carbon dioxide emissions. That is bad news. There's a whole lot of other chemicals that raise greenhouse gases. Greenhouse gases, yeah, that, that raise global temperatures and that kind of stuff. But the good news is that people are coming up with solutions to, the, to these things. In particular, I'm going to be looking at some research out of Queensland into a type of pink seaweed that can stop cattle from burping out methane. It might sound a bit silly, but it could have a big impact on our emissions. You're actually feeding this pink seaweed to cows? Oh, yeah, totally. What's wrong with that? Nothing is wrong with that. I love myself they, a little bit of seaweed. Are they sea cows? <laughs> they're, they're normal cows, Stu. Okay. And Stu, what do you have for us today? Well, actually, my story is tangentially related to climate change too. I'm going to be talking about two elements which may uh, help to alleviate climate change by being used in alternative energy production from renewable resources. Has this got anything to do with the International Year for the Periodic Tables, Stu? As a matter of fact, it does. Really? Yes. Great. Are you going to keep us in suspense as to what the elements are? Well, if I tell you what they are, you may not have ever heard of them anyway, so you'll (laughs) just have to find out more about them later in the show. All right. On with the show then. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, you might have heard recently uh, reports, on particularly a big United Nations report, that land use and food production are a huge source of emissions. They account for nearly one-third of worldwide uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, now, this is a big problem, but you know there are many things that need to be done to address this, You know, including changes to forestry and land-clearing practices. Um, so don't clear as much land. Yeah, that kind of thing. Keep, keep the trees there. Uh, reducing food waste is a big one. Uh, uh, adopting a plant-rich diet, which I think we've talked about before, the yep. Anthropocene diet, I think you called it. So, yeah, and like with that last one, there are a number of reasons why you'd want to eat plants instead of meat, but one of them is that cattle themselves are polluting 
Polluters. Polluters is they the word I'm looking for. They are methane producers. Yeah. They emit methane as a product of their digestive system. I mean, it isn't necessarily them producing the methane. It's their microbes, right? It is. It is microbes in their four-chambered stomach. And that's what happens when you have to break down cellulose. Pretty much. Pretty much. I should clarify when we're talking about the methane being emitted. It is um, primarily in burps, not farts. So we are talking about cow burps, not cow farts. Fact. Don't think that we are going to go that low or... <laughs> Wait I think till, we just did. Wait till Claire gets onto her butt ropes, then we'll be fine. <laughs> anyway, now this may sound like it is a non-negotiable condition of bovine biology, but scientists at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland think they may have a solution because there is a puffy pink seaweed that grows up there of the genus Asparagopsis that seems to affect the cow's gut microbes. There's some ingredient in the seaweed that affects the microbes in the cow's gut and it cancels out the methane production. Um, apparently, according to one of the researchers, the cow's seem to know about this because they will occasionally wander down to the beach to themselves nibble on a bit of seaweed. Okay, so anyway, this um, this seaweed this seaweed could have a, an impact. I'm going to get a bit statistical here. So if you have like less than 2% of this as a component of the cow's dry feed, it can reduce the methane by 99%. And apparently these, um, these scientists have calculated that if every cow in Australia ate it, it would reduce the nation's emissions by about 10%. Wow. Yeah. <gasps> That is huge. Yeah, it is a huge thing. So what they're trying to do, figure out now, is how to, I guess, breed the seaweed to get maximum amount of the active ingredients that they need, and also how to grow enough seaweed to feed the nation's cattle. Right. So they know what the active ingredient is in the seaweed. I, th- I believe they do. Yes, I couldn't mm. tell you what it is. Interesting. Hmm. So yeah, this is um, it's still a little way off till we see it applied to every cow in Australia, but it is a so it's a future kind of thing that we'll get the benefits from it, which is why when you you look at uh, lists of climate change actions, such as on the Project Drawdown website, which I'll talk about in a moment, it kind of rates an honorary mention. So Project Drawdown is a really interesting website that where they try and do they look at all the kind of different practical things that can be done to address climate change, the different solutions, and work out what the the kind of the impact of them would be, and also their costs and benefits and this kind of stuff. Um, so something like they're feeding seaweed to cows is actually on their list, but it's there. They don't know what the the total impact would be and the cost would be. So it's kind of like oh, this is a future thing coming soon. Sort of there will be cow seaweed. Um, but there are plenty of other things, so it is worth looking at what does make the list. And the the top one on their list, the top solution they put is something called refrigerant management. Managing so, what goes into cooling systems? Yeah, basically. So I don't know if you recall, but a while back they used to use things like chlorofluorocarbons to in refrigerators. Mm-hmm. Um, but they stopped using them for a very particular reason. Can you remember what that was? They were putting a hole in the ozone layer. They were indeed putting a hole in the ozone layer. There was a there was in 1987. There was the Montreal Protocol, which was to basically phase out the CFCs because yeah, they were damaging the ozone layer. Which have being in southern Australia, anyone in southern Australia would know the um, that you don't want a hole in your ozone layer. Um, so they replace them primarily with uh, hydrofluorocarbons, which don't damage the ozone layer, but they do have a much 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 greater uh, greenhouse gas effect. So now we have to do something about the replacement for the thing that we replaced in the first place. Um, but this has been nutted out. In 2016, countries of the world got together in Kigali, in Rwanda, to negotiate a new deal. Is The Kigali Accord uh, has been signed up by everyone. Um, the Australian government actually claims that they had a big role in setting it up. I think they're just trying to blow their own trumpet. But um, at least they weren't actively opposing it, I guess, is the main 
the main thing. But yeah, the, um, the Kigali Accord to address the to to basically phase down they're calling it um, the these hydrofluorocarbons, and it will take a while to do it um, over about thirty years. Um, they're supposed to the developed countries are supposed to start this year on their actions to phase down the hydrofluorocarbons with developing countries getting a bit longer to to uh, get their act together. But the thing is, it will have a, a big effect on um, on the um, world's greenhouse gas emissions. I can see, I'm talking about hydrofluorocarbons and government agreements, it does sound like a, a kind of a boring topic. But again, this is a big impact. So these things like these hydrofluorocarbons, that's what count what are called um, short-lived climate pollutants. So they last a less time in the atmosphere than something like carbon dioxide, but they have a much greater um, greenhouse effect while they're there. And they are essential to address if we do want to address climate change. If we can um, cut out these um, these chemicals like the hydrofluorocarbons, it'd be much as um, half a degree Celsius impact on global warming. Wow. So they're huge. That's the same. These are huge. They're essential to do it. We can't possibly think we're going to address, uh, say, keep below one and a half degrees or let alone two degrees without addressing these things. Mm. So it is because they're short-lived, so they break down very quickly in the atmosphere, whereas carbon dioxide's there. And that's, I guess, the other end of the problem is we've got to reduce all of the greenhouse gases, but the short-lived ones, it makes sense to get rid of them first because the effect will be quicker. They're also, it's, I suppose, they're more limited use. Yeah. You know, things like hydrofluorocarbons, you know, we can control the use. It's, it is harder to turn the whole yeah, economy around from using um, fossil fuels. But, yeah, methane is itself is another one of these um, short-lived um, climate pollutants, which is why feeding seaweed to cows perhaps is part of that whole equation. There's other things that are sources of methane as well, um, natural gas, uh, is generally uh, methane, and there are a lot of fugitive emissions you get out of that, which go into the atmosphere and can be damaging. But yes, we need to address all of these things. So there is action being taken. Some of it, uh, like developing seaweed, will take a while. Even the cutting out the hydrofluorocarbons will take, you know, 30 years or so. But yeah, these things are all being done and hopefully will help keep us to a livable climate. Now, there are a lot of elements in the periodic table, uh, and we've been covering some of them this year. Oh, Stu, I think we might have covered most of them. Yeah, there's been like, what? You've done a lot of stories on the periodic table. It feels like there's been a lot of them. There's, there's been a few, but oh, like, we haven't there even, been enough? We haven't gone even through half of the elements. And, uh, you know, look, a lot of the elements are lesser known elements. There's some <laughs> very important ones, but probably only about... 20 or so are important for life on Earth. The rest of them are just around. <laughs> I want to talk about two today that are probably less known than others, but there's some interesting things about them that might make them uh, more interesting in the future. So the first one is tellurium, which is a, well, it used to be a relatively cheap element. It used to sell for about $30 a kilo on the open elements market. Oh, tellurium. Are there tellurium stocks we can buy now, tellurium futures? Well, there probably are. Um, at the moment, so so in the year 2000, it was about $30 a kilogram in US dollars. Now it's over $200 a kilogram. And estimates of the supply in the next five years are that it won't be able to meet demand and prices are likely to go higher. So this is going to be a sought-after commodity. Oh, funny I'd bought some tellurium back in the early if days. Only, if yeah. only you had. So it's used for high-tech 
uh, purposes, like building X-ray detectors, uh, improving refraction in glass-based fiber optic cables. Ooh, See, who I, doesn't I, want to get into yeah, that I'd, industry? I'd like to do, I'd like to do that. Um, <laughs> but it's also used for things like coloring ceramics. So I think the people who use it for coloring ceramics color. might not actually makes them go red. Uh, probably right, probably okay. won't be able to compete they with the, the high tech market. Priced out of the market. They might be because uh, what they're actually what it's actually really useful for is um, its use in high efficiency solar panel production. So right. it's a really useful for building high efficiency oh, solar panels okay. over other elements that and you could use. And we're going to want more and more solar panels as a growing market. We would want more and more. Um, so the actual stuff itself is it has similar chemical properties to sulfur, which is there's a lot more sulfur. So some of the things it can do is a substitute for sulfur, but it's better at doing those things than sulfur is. Could I buy some sulfur and tell people it's tellurium and make a, they, a can of tellurium? They kind of look different. Mm. So, nice but, but also, Chris. yeah, also some microbes use it in place of sulfur for making amino acids. So there's a lot of amino acids with sulfur in them. Some microbes go, ha, we're not going to use sulfur. We're going to use this right. fancy tellurium instead. Um, many relatively common bacteria, such as one called Pseudomonas aeruginosa, oh. use tellurium in place of sulfur in their metabolism. And guess what that does? It makes, makes them, them really rich. Makes them really <laughs> toxic. Oh, right. To plants and animals, yeah, okay. and that is actually also their absorption of tellurium makes them potentially deadly to to animals and and plants. Sounds um, like quite an advantage. Well, yeah, I guess if you're a microbe and you want to take over the world, that's what you should do. Um, <laughs> if humans are exposed to high concentrations of tellurium, one of the symptoms is garlic breath. People get garlic breath when they have tellurium poisoning. Okay, that's not the only way you get garlic breath, people. Don't no, worry, you don't not have everyone. tellurium poisoning if you have eaten a lot of garlic, right? But it's, if you've eaten a lot of tellurium, though, it's, that it's, could be the reason why you have garlic breath. It's basically due to how it's metabolized in the human body. It binds up with sulfur and, and it comes out smelling like garlic. That's so weird. Yeah, and guess where it was discovered in 1782? Transylvania. Yes. Oh! <gasps> Isn't that amazing? So it probably repelled vampires in Transylvania. These people were getting tellurium poisoning, <laughs> and it kept the vampires away long enough that they could discover tellurium or something. That's probably it, yeah. Yeah, I think that's how it worked. Uh, it was named tellurium by an Austrian whose name was Martin Heinrich Klaproth in 1798 from the Latin word for earth, which is tellus. Tell okay. us more, well, Stu. Yeah, it's, tell you what? Tell us. I'll tell you what. The Latin word for earth. Yes. Tell us. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't want to tell oh, you. I all right, okay, all right. Look, three stooges. Tellurium. Two, two, two stooges Sorry. over here. Yeah, there's only two stooges in this room. So around 20 years later, another element was discovered that had similar properties to tellurium, and it was named after the Greek word for the moon, which is, what is it, Chris? Selenia. Selena? Selena. 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 Yeah. So selenium, uh, someone said, hey, this chemical's just like tellurium. It has all these similar properties. And because tellurium was named after the earth, he decided he would name it after the moon. It's beautiful. It is. Oh. It, just a, a matching pair. Um, so guess where selenium appears in the periodic table? Um, directly below tellurium? No, directly above tellurium <laughs> and directly and below like sulfur. Sulfur. So they have very similar properties, and, and they get used interchangeably by a lot of living things as a result. Um, 
so selenium is very common in the ocean, apparently, but less common on land. So a lot of sea-based organisms have higher requirements for selenium than terrestrial organisms because there's less selenium on the land. So everything that's evolved on the land doesn't need much selenium, but everything that lives in the ocean has always had it there, so it uses lots of it. But some land plants have a high requirement for selenium as a nutrient, so you can actually spot those plants and they can figure out where there's selenium deposits by looking at the plants. Such growing. as? Oh, nothing that you'd actually know because they only grow in places <laughs> high in selenium. A lot of them are in South America and oh, okay. places like that. Um, are there high selenium deposits There in are South high America? selenium deposits in South America. The Brazil nut, for example, <gasps> is oh. the food highest in selenium, but only if it's grown in an area with high soil <laughs> availability of selenium. If you grow it in a tellurium area, will it... I don't think it substitutes, no. No, so you won't get the garlic breath from the Brazil nuts, potentially. However, um, some people do take selenium as a dietary supplement, though most people get enough from eating a balanced diet, but they've also shown positive effects from taking selenium supplements in patients suffering Hashimoto's disease. What's that? It attacks the, uh, the thyroid cells in people's bodies, and the selenium prevents the immune system from attacking the thyroid cells by somehow protecting them. They're not entirely mm. sure, but they've found some positive results from people with low selenium, giving them higher selenium, and it makes them better. I'm pretty certain, though, from things I've read about, like supplementation, that selenium is one of those ones that uh, if you don't have a deficiency, it's actually unsafe to take large amounts of it. Yeah, you shouldn't. That's No one's advising that anyone yeah, yeah, should yeah. take selenium supplements. Um, because, And one of the other things, too, it does give you that same garlic breath one symptom. Time. Over time. So that's uh, a weird thing. Other things selenium has been used for uh, is making semiconductors for electronics, but mostly that's been replaced by silicon, which it used to be used instead of silicon. Now we've got better supplies of silicon, so we use that instead. Um, But they have made lithium selenium batteries, which are more efficient than lithium sulfur batteries, which is cheaper to make because sulfur is cheaper. and even though it is considered a trace element, it can cause toxicity, as I said. Uh, it's pretty unusual for people to get a selenium deficiency, though, unless there's something else going on, So, which is what the Hashimoto's thing is. Now, one other use for selenium, and I picked this up from watching a really, really bad movie called Evolution back in uh, with David Duchovny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which totally misrepresented how evolution worked. But one of the things that they came up with was selenium because selenium was, you know, toxic to these weird life forms or something like that. But he figured it out because selenium is an ingredient in anti-dandruff shampoo. And so dandruff can be caused by all sorts of things, uh, including in some cases a yeast that grows on people's scalps and it makes the skin all dry and flaky. Um, so selenium, some research that I recently dug up, may have an effect in helping people with their dandruff, uh, but only if it's caused by this fungus. And there are about a thousand other causes of dandruff. So the the selenium additives in anti-dandruff shampoo might not be the most effective way to treat your dandruff. But those are just two elements which I think in the future may be actually more important. Um, but you may also have never heard of them before. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. How much do you know about spider silk? 
I know that it is allegedly stronger than steel in some way of measuring strength. Yes. Yes, that is one of the things that but it is But you wouldn't build for. a bridge out of it unless you were a spider. Unless you were a spider. What and if it was a, I um, mean, spiders use it, spider silk, to build webs, obviously. Saying, that yeah, is also yeah. one yeah, thing clearly, yeah. that you would know about it. What if it was a suspension bridge? Well, yeah, I mean, clearly you would. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying if, if I would rather go on a, a steel bridge. Uh, well, look. Also, yeah, anyway. If you've got enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to put a pin in that one. Um, they use them to catch insects. They do use it to <laughs> use it to catch insects. Did you know there isn't just one type of silk out there for all spider species? Um, there's no all-purpose silk. Um, in fact, one species of spider is capable of producing up to seven different types of silk. Um, and then there's also a huge variation between silks as well, which is incredible. And and it got me thinking, how do they do this? Um, what is it that means that these different spider species are creating these different types mm-hmm. of silk? Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out it all comes down to the different anatomical structures that the that the spiders have, these these glands in each species of spider. So these are like the organs that the spider uses to make the silk and their webs. Anyway, so a researcher at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, Dr. Cheryl Hayashi, is hoping to collect and characterise the spider web glands from spiders around the world. So, so far she's collected and characterised around 50 types of spider web glands. Um, Now, if you can have a ballpark guess of how many different spider species there are in the world. um, 80 million. Oh, that's that's pretty high. I mean, there's about forty eight thousand oh, species well, okay. of different. <laughs> Get to it, spiders! What are you doing? <laughs> but maybe that's just described. You're letting spiders. letting the arthropod team down <laughs> yeah, completely. You're, you're thinking of beetles, possibly. Yeah. Oh, beetles! They're everywhere. They're one everywhere. in one in four species. Incredible. And yeah. anyway, don't get me started on beetles. That's next. Are week. you pro con? I'm pro beetle. Okay. So her lab in the American Museum of Natural History is not only figuring out what these glands are, but uncovering the genes behind uh, each type of silk to create a type of silk library. Um, So this is in part of an effort to learn how spiders make so many different kinds of silk and what allows each kind to behave differently. So this is really super important information for us to have as a repository um, and fundamental when you start thinking about biomimicry. Um, scientists and researchers speculate that um, spider web silk can help to create new pesticides for better materials for bulletproof vests, for space gear, for biodegradable fishing line. For catching thieves just like flies. For catching <laughs> These <laughs> just like flies. Um, for you know, new types of materials for yep. clothing. Um, you know, it's it's that potentially versatile. So we really need this library, and having this library of genes is really going to help. But obviously, when you've got such biodiversity, uh, it's going to be a challenge to capture all this information. So the orb weaver spider, for example, has this is just one type of spider, and it's got seven different types of silk. They're the ones that do the the classic spider web, the the big kind of round thing with all the little circular bits going around it. Yeah, your classic your classic web that you might get caught up yeah, in. Yeah, you picture a spider web in your mind. Time. That's your orb weaver. That's your orb weaver. Yeah. yeah. Um and so they can create one different type of web 
um, that has a sticky glue to catch prey. There's also another one that's really tough but stretchy to absorb the impact of a flying insect oh, yeah. sort of flying into it. Um, they've got one that allows that takes the full force of the orb weaver spider and allows it to dangle. So that's oh, yeah. the one that's you know got that um, really that this really tough and you know has a greater tensile strength than steel. Um, so there are all these types of um, different webs. There's also um, webs that are specifically around reproduction. So some male webs produce these so-called sperm webs, which is really weird. And they disgusting. <laughs> It's disgusting. <laughs> you know, it's nature. There's also ballooning webs for oh, spiders yeah. who need a web to get from A to B. Transportation webs. Yep. 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 There are specific webs for eating. A spider might just like make a bit of web and they might get hungry and eat it. <laughs> so they just make snacks for themselves. Yeah, they make snacks for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> There's there's webs uh, for guidelines, alarm webs. I mean, they, um, they wrap their prey up in a kind of a web. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a different their, type of web as well. Their yeah. nest for their their baby spiders. Yeah, or spiderlings, if you will, out of some sort of web. Substance. Yeah, they're all different types of webs. Yeah, I was saying there's lots so of webs. There's lots of webs, but they're there's, all they're all proteins, right? But they're all proteins. Yeah, so that's um, probably. I mean, that makes sense that you can eat them because they're actually mm, a source of protein. Delicious. Yeah, but there are a lot of things that are proteins that you can't eat, aren't there? Mm, there's probably poisonous proteins as well, but I'm sure. Can, can the spider poison itself with its own protein web? Oh, let's not start that again. <laughs> what I find super cool, though, is that even though you've got this incredible variation in the types of characteristics of these webs, it all starts with a very similar raw product. So according to Cheryl Hayashi, um, it starts as some sort of wad of goo. Um, that's quite viscous, honey-like, and the spiders um, make this goo and then they keep it in a gland until they need to produce and use a certain and use a certain type of silk to turn it into web. So it starts as one thing, and then through this glandular process, um, it turns the web into you know whatever's needed in that moment. So when the time is right. A narrow nozzle called a spigot, also a tap. Is that right, Stu? Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it opens, and as the goo flows out, it morphs into a solid silk strand that is weaved with other strands emerging from other spigots. So that's how you get your um, your that's how you get your spider web. Um, and depending on the glands and the spigots, you get different types of webs. Um, so how and why silks behave in these various ways is determined by the spider's genes, obviously. So if, for example, we want to mimic, mimic this spider web, um, the incredible strength, the durability, the flexibility, the flexibility that goes along with it, we need to understand the genes. One of the biggest challenges being getting the entire gene for a spider for a spider web um, into an artificial system to be able to clone it. Um, so if researchers try to produce synthetic silk from just a part of the gene, it's nowhere as good as the real deal. So they've had a lot of issues with that. But the good news is that with recent improvements in gene technology um, as such that it's quite a lot easier to reproduce analogues of spiderwebs. So last year a group of scientists perfectly mimicked an ore-weaving spider's dragline silk so that's the one that they are able to hang from using bacteria as the organism that they reproduced it in. Um, so I guess you could say 
uh, one down, more than 48,000 web types to go. And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for sticking with us. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us at Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can just tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.